today Mike is, is not here. So we're going to do something slightly different. I'm going to sing and freestyle the announcements. <laughs> so give me a beat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're going to do announcements at the end of the service today. So if you want to give me some, hey, I'll take the theme music while I'm preaching. I don't mind the theme music while I'm preaching. You know, I'm like Cabbage Patch up here, you know, don't, for those of y'all that didn't know. All right, so last week we finished Romans chapter 9, and as some of you know, August is a sabbatical month for our church. It doesn't mean we don't do anything, but we rest typically from some of the things that we do, like our weekly meetings apart from Sunday, unless people have desire to do that with their groups. I also take that month off. I just started doing this a couple years ago. August is the month that I'm off where I'm not here on Sundays. I'm not doing any ministry. I'm just spending time with my family, refreshing, and I come back in September. So because we finished Romans 9 last Sunday, and Romans 10 would take longer than two weeks for me to actually preach, we're going to pause on continuing in Romans for a bit. But I want to stay in the theme of what we've been learning about God's sovereignty, God's providence. Now, in August, we've talked about this last week. And Wednesday, Carl will be teaching about God's providence. And then Mike has an incredible series that he's going to teach. I don't think we've taught what Mike is teaching in August, I don't think we've taught it before in this church. So I was really excited as we talked through it and kind of laid the framework for what it will be. So I'm excited both on Wednesday night and Sunday for you all. But what I want to do this morning is something a little different. This is going to be less of a sermon and more of an illustration from the Bible to show you how God works. In a sense, a practical display of God working in circumstantial ways to bring about his will for particular situations. So we're going to go Old Testament today in the book of First Kings. So if you have a Bible, a Bible app, open to First Kings 11. This is going to be essentially, we're going to be looking at how God works. How does this play out sometimes in practical ways? This chapter for me has always been, for me personally, an impressive chapter when you see what God does and how he uses circumstances to bring about his cause. This ought to be interesting. All right, let's begin. First Kings 11, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the CSB translation, and I quote. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. 
and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. Probably obvious. <laughs> Thousand women. It's going to have some impact. Many of us just got one wife and we've been changed forever. I didn't say that was negative. I just said we've been changed forever. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon fathered Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorred idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorred idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorred idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had, prepared, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear away the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet he will not, yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give him one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. I'm right, going to read pretty much this entire chapter, but we're going to stop there. Let's look at a couple things. Most of this is pretty self-explanatory. This is a... Old Testament daytime soap opera. This would, I don't know if this would be the Young and the Restless, but it would definitely be As the World Turns. So there's two items to note in this that you would just gloss over without knowing that the rest of the story is pretty self-explanatory, but two things that we're going to focus on. First, verse 7, where he says this. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites on the hill across from Jerusalem. What is a high place? This is an important reality, right? To understand the backdrop of this story, to understand this, what is a high place? Now, at the end of verse 7, you hear this phrase, on the hill across from Jerusalem. So you may not know this, but Jerusalem was higher up above ground. So when, in, the, in the New Testament, when you talk, when it talks about Jesus was on his way up, to Jerusalem, it's not just vernacular. It's actually describing that Jerusalem was higher up. And so what Solomon would do was build altars to false gods as high up as Jerusalem was, and they would consider these high places. Now, generally speaking, the Bible condemns the use of high places as idolatrous. They were a rejection of Yahweh, and the increasing use of high places rather than the temple, particularly after Solomon built the temple, 
is presented as a direct cause by the prophets for the fact that the Jews are going to be in exile. They're going to be disciplined because they continue to go to these high places and worship false gods as opposed to going to the temple that Solomon had built. These were worship for Canaanite deities. And God was not pleased. They used these high places to say, we'd rather worship these gods than Yahweh. Now, Solomon, who built the temple, after he built the temple, they still continue to use high places. And this presented essentially a deliberate slap in the face to the God who saved them. It was a rejection of worship to him. Now, the sad part about this reality is this didn't happen instantaneously. This was over the course of Solomon's life. If I were doing a sermon about watch your life and doctrine, I could use him as an example because he started off someplace where we all want to be, but where he ended up was where none of us want to go. So we're going to just really quickly, briefly walk through how did Solomon get here? So we're going to start in just this brief journey of how Solomon got here. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, Solomon worshipped in high places initially because there was no temple. Here's what 1 Kings 3, 2 through 4 tells us. However, the people were sacrificing on the high places because until that time, a temple for the Lord's name had not been built. Solomon loved the Lord by walking in all the statues of his father, David. But he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So you see, that's, that's not what the Lord said do. So he said, but he also, right? So he's doing both. I love the Lord, but I'm also going to still worship in ways that I'm not supposed to. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Just after that, Solomon gains wisdom from God. Beginning in verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask, what should I give you? And Solomon replied, you have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faith, faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people whom you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So you see, there's a humility. Wow, Lord, you've made me king but I'm not capable of doing this. I can't do this without you. This is too great of a job for me. That's what we want to be at. Lord, I'm just, I'm just, I need you. I need your help. I am not equipped for what you've asked me to do. I think I pray this consistently, particularly on Sundays. It's, it's a posture of the heart that we want. In this sense, well done, Solomon. Verse 10. Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice, 
I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, for both riches and honor so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes, just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Solomon's wisdom was legendary. Many of us know that he wrote a lot of the Proverbs. In fact, one of the greatest narratives of Solomon's wisdom that he got from God was these two women were fighting over a baby. Whose child is this? And to determine who was lying, Solomon said, grab a sword and split the child in half. And one mother said, sure, that's fine. And the other mother said, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. She can have him. And he said, this is the boy's mother. Why? Because no mom would let her son be killed. No mom would let her son be split in half. And then that, that story alone traveled throughout the kingdom. Like this dude Solomon is no joke. Be careful what problems you have and you take to him. He's talking about splitting kids in half. What's he going to do about your cat? So Solomon has this wisdom. The Lord is pleased with him. And then Solomon continues to that. Go to, go, to, go to 1 Kings 3.15. Look at this real quick. He says this. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he held a feast for all his servants. So you notice he didn't go to a high place this time. Now he goes to the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God is. So he has this dream from God. He wakes up like, man, I was in the presence of God. God is with me. He abandons those high places, and now he's worshiping at the Ark. Thank you, brother. But then over time, things begin to change, but not until he does something amazing. In chapters 5 through 8, Solomon builds an amazing temple for the Lord. Let's look at chapter 5, just a couple verses, first three verses, beginning of verse 2, actually. Solomon sent this message to Hiram. You know my father David was not able to build a temple for the name of the Lord his God. This was because of the warfare all around him until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. The Lord my God has now given me rest on every side. There is no enemy of misfortune. Listen to this. There is no enemy of misfortune, right? So he's saying the Lord, I'm, I'm in peace. Remember this. So I plan to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. According to what the Lord promised my father David, I will put your son on your throne in your place, and he will build the temple for my name. So for these three verses, you get these details of the temple and the way it looked, and it was beautiful. It's a beautiful temple. Shortly after that temple is built, and Solomon begins to amass whatever he desires because he's wise, he's rich, he's the king. Time goes by, and then we find ourselves in the passage we're in today. Back to 1 Kings 11. Here's a description. After the temple was built, after the rejection of the high places, after an allegiance to God, we find ourselves back here. King Solomon had many foreign wives in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you because you will turn away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had several hundred wives who were, 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. 
When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And look what he does. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians and Milcom, the Abornite of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. So here Solomon builds this great temple in worship and obedience to God. And then afterwards, as his heart begins to change, he builds a competing place of worship on the opposite hill of Jerusalem. So when people see the beautiful temple that he's built in Jerusalem, they also see this idolatrous worship center right across from it. This is the cause for his demise. Now, there's something that happened in this passage. In verse 11, it says this. So God said to him, I'm sorry, let me go back up here. Then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this, and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Second thing to note. So first is high places. The second is this language of tearing the kingdom. If you were to do a theme of tearing clothes, you would see that this is a major component of what it meant to be a Jew. Tearing, their, tearing clothes had two primary purposes. One, when a person tore their own clothes, it was a, an ancient tradition among the Jews, and it's associated with mourning, grief, and, and great loss. Tearing one's clothes was a, a public display of an expression of great grief. You tear your clothes, and, you're, and then you would also hear like sackcloth and ashes. You saw this in, in Nineveh, where Jonah preached the brief gospel message. <laughs> Y'all getting killed today. <laughs> That was his message, <laughs> paraphrasing. And this is they tore their clothes, and the king commanded everyone being sackcloth and ashes. Well, the origin of tearing clothes actually comes from Reuben. Reuben is one of Jacob's 12 sons. Reuben is the first person recorded in the Bible as tearing his clothes. What happened was the brothers were jealous of Joseph. They decided to, to, to sell him away, but Reuben was going to actually save him. He had planned on saving his brother before his brother sold him. But he was too late. And here's what, you don't have to turn there, but here's what Genesis 37, 29, 30 says. It says this, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? So that was the first instance of clothes being torn as a sign of grief. That became something even through Jesus's day where they would tear their clothes as an expression of grief and sorrow. So when God says, I'm tearing the kingdom from you, there's an expression of grief and sorrow. But there's another thing. There's another reason why clothes get torn. And this one is more applicable to Solomon. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this briefly. It's also a form of judgment. In 1 Samuel 15, 
He says this, 22 through 28. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Let me back up real quick. Here's what happened. God gave Saul a command to go kill the Amalekites. He said, leave nothing. Don't take anything. Kill the Amalekites. Don't take anything. Solomon goes, I mean, Saul goes and says, well, let's kill most of them. Let's keep the king alive and let's take all the good cattle. Let's take some of the other stuff and take it back to the kingdom. So God tells Samuel, Saul's disobeyed me. So Samuel, the prophet, goes to find Saul. And there's all these animal noises and all this stuff. And so Saul sees Samuel and walks up and says, hey, I've obeyed the will of the Lord. And so Samuel said, then what's with all the sheep, fam? Why are all these sheep here? And then Saul says, oh, man, it was the people. You know how they are. Just like Aaron. Just like Aaron telling Moses, man, it was these stiff-necked people. They gave me the jewelry. I threw it in the fire, and then a calf came out of it. He didn't say I fashioned it into a calf, right? Saul was like, oh, it was the people. You know how they are, man. They wanted some stuff, and I thought, all right, let's bring it back and sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord said, but I said, don't bring anything back. So that's the backdrop of what we're about to read. And in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, says Samuel, Samuel says this, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? What a statement. Does the Lord take pleasure in our acts of service more than obedience to him? That's a different message. Look. To obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Verse 23 of 1 Samuel 15. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have accepted the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words. Because, now here's the real truth, because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So here he tears it, his robe, and that's an analogy of God's judgment. God has torn the kingdom away from you. So God's using this language. I'm going to tear the kingdom, and he's going to literally fulfill that later on in, the, in, the, in this chapter 11. So this is the backdrop. This is all the backdrop. This is what Solomon does. It's the backdrop. Now we're going to look at three specific scenes to see how God works. Three specific scenes to see how God works. This is how kind of providence works like this. Beginning in verse 14 of 1 Kings 11. The language is very intentional. So the Lord raised up Hadad the Edomite as an enemy against Solomon. He was of the royal family in Edom. Earlier when David was in Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, had gone to bury the dead and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel had remained there six months. 
until he had killed, killed every male in Edom. Hadad fled to Egypt along with some Edomites from his father's servants. At the time, Hadad was a small boy. It's probably Hadad, but you know, sometimes this is how you say these things. I'm going to say Hadad. If it's wrong, don't worry about it. It reminds you of Baghdad. <laughs> don't worry. Studio artists is supposed to say nothing. Hadad and his men set out from Midian and went to Paran. They took men with them from Paran and went to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house, ordered that he be given food and gave him land. Pharaoh liked Hadad so much that he gave him a wife, a sister from his own wife, Queen Tophanes. Tophanes' sister gave birth to Hadad's son, Jenubath. Tophanes herself weaned him in Pharaoh's palace, and Jenubath lived there with, along with Pharaoh's sons. When Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his ancestors and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me leave so I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh asked him, what do you lack here with me for you, for you want to go back to your own country? Nothing, he replied, but please let me leave. Two items to note here. One in particular. The beginning of verse 14. It says, the Lord raised up Hadad the Edomite as an enemy against Solomon. The Lord raised him up. And it gives background story to what happened. But let me give you the background story. It just only covers it in two verses in 2 Samuel 8 and two verses in 1 Chronicles. Well, it tells this story, 2 Chronicles. These are the only two verses historically that this is referring to. Our scene gives much more detail. 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14 says this. You don't have to turn there. David made a reputation for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in Salt Valley. He placed garrisons, military outposts, throughout Edom. And all the Edomites were subject to David. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So here when David was king and establishing himself as king and going to war, this is very typical, he destroys the Edomites and apparently thought they destroyed all of them. But one little boy and a few servants got away. One little boy. David's establishing himself as king. This is the type of situation that happened often. They tried to kill everything. But one little boy got away. One boy. Now it said the Lord raised up Hadad. But if we're honest, if that verse hadn't been put in the scriptures, we wouldn't know that. If it didn't say the Lord raised him up, we would read this as just a typical story. So how did the Lord raise him up? Well, first, he escaped in verse 17 of our verse. Hadad fled to Egypt along with some of the Edomites from his father's servants. At the time, he was a small boy. So he's watching all the men that he knows be slaughtered by David. He flees and gets away as a little boy. He escaped. How does he raise him up? Well, he grew in stature. Verse 19, Pharaoh liked to dad so much that he gave him a wife, the sister of his own wife. So he grows up and he finds favor. He gets stature from Pharaoh. But the most important way God raised him up is verse 21. He remembered. 
When Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his ancestors and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me leave so I may go to my own country. So he never forgot what he saw, and he never forgot who did it. Now what's interesting is God used the natural circumstances of war and particularly its impact on Hadad's life to become the main means in which he would punish Solomon. He would make him an enemy. This wasn't even something that Solomon did. This was something his father did, killed all these men. This person isn't even in, the Edomites aren't even in Solomon's mind. They've been destroyed by his father, yet one escaped and he rises up and he remembers. God uses the anguish, the bitterness, and the vengeful spirit of this man to bring about punishment towards Solomon for his disobedience. If the verse 14 had not said the Lord raised him up, we would just read that as regular, everyday circumstance that happens in war. We watch this in movies all the time. Someone gets killed, their parent, they get, their, their loved ones get killed as a kid, and they grow up and take vengeance. They remember, they train. I mean, this is what Black Panther was about, right? Killmonger's dad was killed by Black Panther. He grows up, he trains, he becomes an elite assassin. And then he comes back to Wakanda to take revenge. That was the main thing. This is a normal reality. But in the scriptures, it's God used this normal reality to bring about his purpose to judge Solomon for his disobedience. So God can take something that seems so incidental. This is an indirect reality. It's incidental that all of this happened before Solomon even knew what was going on, didn't even know he existed. And this man grows up to become the means in which God is using you to get judged. God can take any circumstance and work it for a purpose that glorifies him. Even something as indirect as this. First scene. Second scene of how God works. Beginning in verse 23 of 1 Kings 11. Similar language. God raised up Rezin, son of Eliada, as an enemy against Solomon. Rezin had fled from his master king, Hadazer of Zobah, and gathered men to himself. He became a leader of a raiding party when David killed the Zoabites. He went to Damascus, lived there, and became king in Damascus. Rezin was Israel's enemy throughout Solomon's reign, adding to the trouble Hadad had caused. He reigned over Aram and loathed Israel. So again, normal circumstance. What's the backstory to this? 2 Samuel 8, just two verses. Here's what this is referring to, these two verses in 2 Samuel 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, David also defeated Hadazer, Hadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. When you're not in the Old Testament, these names that throw you off. Laugh now, but you read them. <laughs> when he went to restore his control at the Euphrates River, David captured 700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers from him. 
and he hamstrung all the horses and kept a hundred chariots. So here it is, a circumstance of war, typical. Circumstance of war. David is, the Lord is blessing David. He's crushing everything. He gets here, kills these men, takes their chariots, hamstrings their horses so they can't run. They can't assist in war. David's just being a king, doing what God commanded him to do. But God used what David's faithfulness was doing to call someone to respond. He raised him up. Circumstances are different. He wasn't a boy, but he became king. If verse 23 hadn't indicated that God raised him up, we could read this story and not even think God was involved at all. It would just be normal circumstances that happen in war. But the scripture is highlighting that God raised him up. It's drawing our attention to the purposes and the way that God works, even when it looks like a normal situation. I mean, if you if we're at war and you in the streets, it was the same thing. Most of the gang wars that I was involved in were because they killed somebody that we loved. And it just goes on and on. Then you kill someone that they love and then they kill someone that you love. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. That's why a truce is difficult. Because when you call a truce, you're saying, I'm not going to kill you for the pain that I've suffered at the loss of the people that I love that you killed. It happens to all of us. Vengeance. It's normal. This is why Romans tells us vengeance is mine, says the Lord, because the normal propensity in us is to take vengeance when someone hurts us, especially someone we love. You might even be able to handle yourself. I don't think there's a parent in here that would say, if you hurt my children. That's going to be a problem. They might say, you can do whatever you want to me, but if you hurt my kids, I'm not talking about when your kids are little. When you're a parent, you're always a parent. Mm -hmm. Your kids are always your babies, even when they're 40, 50 years old. Mm -hmm. Those are still your babies, your children. You hurt someone's children, you might see a side of them that you didn't think was possible. This is normal. But the scripture says God raised them up. So what normally happens in war, God uses as punishment to Solomon. And it wasn't even Solomon's actual sin. It was his dad's. But God is in his providence using this situation, using his anger, using his vengeful spirit of these two men to come at and be the means in which from different sides. Now, remember what I said earlier when Solomon said, hey, I'm building a kingdom. My father couldn't do it because he was at war all the time. But he said, I'm at peace, right? There's peace all around me. Remember I said, remember that. There's peace all around me. I'm good. See, when he's following the Lord, absolutely there's peace all around you. But then you start making these high places and you start disobeying God. All of a sudden, that peace that was around you, now this dude rises up. And now this dude rises up. And what was like rest on all sides is now drama on all sides because God is allowing the memory of these men to be the, the, the spirit in which they attack and punish Solomon, not for what he did to them, but for what he's doing to God. In both of these situations, it was not the result of something that Solomon did, but God used it to 
decades later. This is how he works. He will take something that happened. We hear this stuff all the time. How many of you have heard stories of someone experiencing some kind of abuse as a child? They forgot. And then they remember decades later. And all of a sudden now, that abuser's in court. What may have thought they'd gotten away with it is now a means that's come all the way back around full circle. Oh, now you're in trouble. You did this, and it's been decades when you hear about murder cases, unsolved cases. Then all of a sudden, somehow they get a tip with some evidence. And now this guy has been, or this woman has been living their lives and doing their own thing for decades after that, thought they got away with it, and now FBI is at their door, they're under arrest, and it becomes a crime show. To us, that's just circumstantial stuff. But the Bible says God is using that. Sometimes people get away with things in this life. But sometimes they don't. And then these passages, this is how God works. I'm going to use this relatively obscure incident to come back and be a thorn in your flesh. Because he's sovereign. He can take that little boy, make sure he remembers who did this, allow him to grow up, get strong enough, and say, I'm going to do something about this. These are both indirect. It just said God raised them up. These are indirect. There's one last scene. One last scene. This one is not indirect. This one is very specific. Beginning in verse 26. Now Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was an Ephraimite from, from Zareda. His widowed mother was named Zeruah. Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. Right? So he's an Israelite. He rebels against Solomon. Verse 27. And this is the reason he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and repaired the opening in the wall of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was capable, and Solomon noticed the young man because he was getting things done. So he appointed him over the entire labor force of the house of Joseph. During that time, the prophet Ahijah, the Shalonite, met Jeroboam on the road as Jeroboam came out of Jerusalem. Now Ahijah had wrapped himself with a new claw, a new cloak, and the two of them were alone in the open field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he had on and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I will give you 10 tribes, but one tribe will remain with him, will remain with his for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I chose out of all of the tribes of Israel. For they have abandoned me. They have bowed down to Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, to Chemosh, the god of Moab, and to Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my sight and carry out my statutes and my judgments as his father David did. Let's stop there for a second. So here's the language. God is going to tear the kingdom, and he uses 
Again, a visual illustration of tearing a cloak. He tears it into 12 pieces, says, take 10. So what God said earlier in verse 11 about tearing the kingdom becomes now a reality in this passage. He tears it, gives them 10 pieces, and says, you take these. But notice that he says the language becomes plural. For they have abandoned me. Verse 33, for they have abandoned me. Not just Solomon. For they, the people, have abandoned me. They have done this. They have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my sight and to carry out my statutes. So Solomon's sin affects everyone else. They have not obeyed the Lord. And so this, this analogy, this, this idea of tearing becomes, that's it. Keeping in this, in verse 34. However, I will not take the whole kingdom from him, but let him be a ruler all the days of his life, like my servant David, whom I chose and kept my commands and my statutes. I will take ten tribes of the kingdom from his son and give them to you. I will give up one tribe to his son so that my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city I love for myself to put my name there. I will appoint you and you will reign as king over all you want and you will be king over Israel. After that, if you obey all I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David and I will give you Israel. I will humble David's descendants because of their unfaithfulness, but not forever. Therefore, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to Egypt, to King Shishak of Egypt, where he remained until Solomon's death. So here, now, if you know the Old Testament narrative, Jeroboam was terrible. In fact, later on, it, re it makes references like this. For they disobeyed the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam. So he becomes the new standard for how not to be. There's a few verses, and they did, they disobeyed the Lord and walked in the ways of, or followed in the ways of Jeroboam. So he wasn't a good king. He didn't listen to the Lord. I, I don't know. Maybe it's me. I don't, it's hard to think you're just going to hear directly from the Lord and then not listen. Now, I know we say, oh, we have his word is to say, oh, no. I just think, like, the Lord appears to me in a dream. That's a wrap. I'm not ever doing nothing opposite of what he said. Maybe I'm just that proud, and I wouldn't. But here we have a direct involvement from the Lord. This is direct. This isn't incidental. This is an actual choosing of God. So we have two indirect. God raised these people up. We wouldn't even think that way if the verses didn't tell us. But in this one, we can't read this without seeing God's direct involvement. Three types of ways that God is working. Well, two technically. Two indirect, one direct. God raises up two to be a thorn in the flesh. And then here, God directly intervenes with someone. So the other two weren't even Israelites. This man is. Now, when you first read the story, it says Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. Now, when we read this, remember what it says this in verse 27. And this is the reason he rebelled against the king. 
Solomon had built the supporting terraces and repaired the opening wall in the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was capable and Solomon noticed the young man because he was getting things done. So he appointed him the entire, appointed him over the entire labor force of the house of Joseph. So when I read this, I was thinking, what, what did he rebel against Solomon for? <laughs> Didn't you think it was going to say, and, 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 and Jeroboam was capable, but Solomon did not appoint him. You know, it's kind of like you didn't get the job. And so he got jealous. But that's not what it says. It says, no, he appointed. He said he was capable. He, he, points, he appoints him over the entire labor force of the house of Joseph. So what was the cause and why he rebelled against them? It can't be he's jealous over that because you got the job. Well, it appears that he rebelled against them because the Lord said, I'm taking the kingdom from them. And that was the means in which. Now, we don't know if he had issues with the way Solomon was doing things. Scripture doesn't tell us that. It could be that he saw the corruption in Solomon. A lot of these kings weren't bad right away. Some of them were good initially, and then immediately, once they got that power, they were evil except in the northern kingdom. All 20 of those kings were terrible. And the, so, so there were 20 kings in the north. They were all terrible. And actually, he was, and then 19 in the south, and six of those were good kings. Three of them started off good, ended up bad. The other ones were decent. When they say power corrupts, they weren't playing. It appears that he rebelled because God said, he's done. He's done. I'm taking the kingdom from them. And once you hear that, like, I don't know how you are, but this is when I was younger. I used, this is to my, to my failure. I used to do this when I was younger. When I put in my two weeks notice on a job, in my mind, you lost all authority over me. That was just it. Like once I put in my two weeks if you were an employee I didn't like, I ain't had no problem letting you know. <laughs> when I put my two weeks in, it's like, man, I'm not, I don't even care. Like, I'm moving on. I might go to work today. <laughs> I used to miss four days out of the last two weeks and forget that that was going to show up on my check. And then when I go pick up my last check, I'd be like, hey, 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 hold on, hold on. I'd be offended. And they'd be like, you only worked five days out of the last two weeks, Kurt. So what, man? Don't I get <laughs> I forgot I needed that money. That new job hadn't kicked in yet. You know how I used to get them jobs where you got to get you had to wait two extra weeks to get paid? Y'all remember them? I hope they don't still have them anymore. If they do, we're gonna lay hands on everybody who's in that situation up front of the church. But once I once I put in my two weeks, you don't have any authority over me. So if I had bosses, it was you know, sarcastic and stuff, the mind would come out. When you work there, it's like, all right, you know, man, whatever, man. I'm just, you know, you talk to yourself. But then once you put in your two weeks, it's like, I'm, huh? No, I'm not doing that today. Okay, fine, leave. Cool. I'm gone. Now, if I would do that on a job, imagine hearing that he's no longer king. I'm making you king. We could be best friends, but now we enemies. I'm taking your spot. God has said, you are finished. So he rebels against, against Solomon. 
This is a direct view of God's providence where it's clear. It doesn't even have to say God raised him up here because it explains it. It explains, okay, God said through the prophet, he's done. You're taking over as king. And then Solomon in the spirit of Saul tries to kill Jeroboam, but he flees to Egypt. It's clear from this passage of scripture, this particular passage, that God intervened here directly to bring about the will of his situation. The other two were just a thorn in the flesh where it went from, hey, peace is all around me to now I'm surrounded by war. But now this one is directly, okay, you're being removed. You're going to be removed. When you die, you're going to be removed. So why is this important for us? Why does this matter? This is the Old Testament. Well, the story is the Old Testament. But the workings are the character of God. And God works in our lives the same way. Not to the same degree. We're not kings over Israel. But he works indirectly and directly. Now, here's why it's important, because sometimes what he does indirectly, we think he's not doing anything at all. What he does directly, we either praise him or are challenged by him. This is about the character of God. And this is what Paul's talking about when he gets to Romans 8, 28, and he says, all things work together, all things what he means by things, he means all circumstances, all the circumstances that the people who love God, all that you experience, God is working out for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So every car accident, every back pain, every having to pray because God doesn't seem like he's answering is making us more dependent on him. Because we have to keep asking. Every, every struggle that leads us to prayer is we're drawing near him. Some of us don't realize that it's awkward to pray to God sometimes because we may think he's upset with us and the way we're living our lives. And so circumstances come up where you have no choice but to pray and then now you're forced to work through whatever is awkward stopping you from praying to God. You're forced to read his word because it's the only thing that's going to comfort you in your circumstance. Mm -hmm. Because that's how he works. But if we don't understand that's how he works, then we'll think it's a bad thing. Yeah. We don't see the blessing. Listen, the blessing of God, one of the main blessings is the nearness and being near to God. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 4. 15, approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's the blessing. Not approaching the throne. Some of us don't approach the throne of grace with confidence and we think it's humility. It's actually pride because God commands us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why does he say that? Because I already know who you are. I knew what you were going to do before the foundation of the world. The beauty of God knowing all things is he's not surprised by what we do. We're surprised. He's not surprised. He doesn't say approach the throne of grace with confidence only when you do the right things. He says, 
approach the throne of grace with confidence because you believe in Jesus Christ. Welcome. This is important to understand how he works. He's going to work indirectly in our lives and directly. That doesn't mean we'll always like it. But we have to understand that even in the subtle things, like I can't find my keys, (laughs) God is testing you. I lost my wallet. The Wi-Fi is not buffering. Who do you trust? So when Paul says all things work together for good, or when James says in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, when you have trials of various kinds, count it joy. Why? Because God is working out something in you. Again, it doesn't mean we like it. It doesn't mean we understand it. There are people in this room who are going through things that are, I don't understand. Why? Well, why, why are you letting this happen? I don't understand it. But he never said, I have to understand it. He just said, I have to trust him. That doesn't make it easier. But at least helps me understand what I'm supposed to do. When we don't understand what God is doing, he's made it clear that we should understand what we're supposed to do. His providence works indirectly, indirectly. And the times when it's really clear and we love it, they become testimonies. When people get up in front of the church and they tell you a story how God worked it out, they're talking about this direct providence that they see. I remember one time I heard this story and I'm going to mess it up. Every time, I, every time I try to tell this, I mess up. But I'm going to try again. I'm going to trust the Spirit is leading me to tell this story. And it was just a story to try to understand God's sovereignty. So there was a man walking. The man walking. And he sees another man running. And then as he's watching the man running, wondering why he's running, another man is chasing him and catches up to him and beats him takes a bag that he was holding from him and runs in the other direction. The guy's watching the man run in the other direction and then he sees two other men come and grab that dude, kill him, take the bag, look in it, hug each other, and then run in another direction. And he says, Lord, why did you let that man take that bag from that man, rob him, and then let these guys rob him and celebrate it and go away. And the Lord says, this time and this time only will I answer you directly. The first man that you saw running broke into a home, beat a woman, and stolen there all the money they had left. The second man that was running after him, I used him to punish him for his sin. The two men who came up to the other man and killed him, that's the money that belonged to them. It was their life savings. The man who took the other man's money was his accomplice, and they did harm to his mother and sister. 
So I allowed them to kill him and get their money back. Now, it's a graphic narrative that makes the point is that what we see isn't always the reality. God's providence, his sovereignty, the way he works, it's not always what we think is happening. God's no to some things or because he's saying yes later on. Lastly, biblically speaking, God allowed Israel to sacrifice animals that God said countless times in the Bible, animal sacrifices meant nothing to me. So then why did you let them do it? Well, one, population control. (laughs) Animal sacrifices didn't please the Lord, but the reason why he did that was because he knew that Jesus, his sacrifice is going to be the one that pleases me and all these sacrifices I will allow to happen in preparation for this sacrifice because when this happens, it covers everything. So I'm okay with allowing you to do this. I will set the rules for you to do this, but this is just to help you understand that when this sacrifice happens, this is what all of these couldn't do. This sacrifice, all of these couldn't do. Biblically speaking, as providence works in these significant ways, and it's indirect and direct, we see it in the old, and then we see it significantly in the New Testament, which we'll look at next week as a part two to how God works in preparation for sort of the month of providence And then what Mike is going to talk about on Sunday, I may have to tune in. I might sneak in here one Sunday. I'm not, but I'm going to definitely. (laughs) I'm on vacation. I'm definitely not, but I will definitely tune in. I may even ask a question or two. This is how God works. Indirectly, directly, and we wouldn't even know it unless he told us. Let's pray. Father, there are times in your your mercy, you let us see what you're doing and and we can see it. You let us connect those dots, see what's going on, and we're able to give glory to you. We're able to communicate what you've done. We're able to directly see the results and and the functional the practical ways that you're working. But often, Lord, we don't. We, you work very indirectly. This is why some people think that you are somehow just watching things play out because you work through natural means. Everything isn't a miracle like, or like the Jews, show us a sign. Everything isn't a sign laid out clearly. Sometimes you work through practical means. Often you do that. And it seems like you're not working at all, but we as people who belong to you, your sons and daughters, must remind ourselves that you are constantly working. For if you didn't, then we would cease to, cease to exist, cease to be any good in the world, cease for the world to exist. 
You are constantly upholding the universe. Constantly. So, Father, I pray that you would help us in the moments where we are disoriented, we're confused, or even angry at what is indirect or sometimes direct, but mostly indirect. We're often perplexed by the indirect providence where you just kind of things just happening. We're like, what is happening? Why is this happening? Father, I pray that you would help us to, to continue to remember that Romans 8, 28 is specifically, that's not a verse for everyone. Lord, people have taken that verse to apply to every single human being. Now, that verse says all things work together for good for those who love God. Father, there are many people in this room and watching through that camera who love you. And so you promise that as a truth. You are the truth teller. So you are promising that your providence is using, that you in your providence are using all circumstances to work together for our good, which you said in verse 29 is to be conformed to the image of your son. So help us as we navigate. You know what we don't know. You know what you've revealed and you know what we don't know. You know what we have to just do by faith and you know what you've made clear to us. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us as we navigate through the minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, and years that you have us here. And we accept, even if we struggle with, we accept the various trials, not because we want them, but because you said you're working something out for our good because we love you and you love us. Lord, may this truth sometimes be enough for us. And when it's not, make it so. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. A few announcements for this week. Oh, no questions? No, we got questions. Oh, I'm about to say, I can't do <laughs> We got questions. I'm going to do um, announcements really quick. Um, this Wednesday, we have joint D groups meeting. So log on with that link, 730. Um, Friday, we have morning prayer. And we also have two events, the vaccination clinic. If you need to get vaccinated still, feel free to sign up for that. That'll be from 3 to 7 p.m., and we also need 10 more volunteers for our food distribution at Charles Carroll Middle School. Mm -hmm. So please consider signing up for that. We're expecting That's on to Friday, be. Friday, right? Yes, what all time? this is Friday at 3 p.m. Okay, 10 more volunteers. Both events. Okay. Mm -hmm. We'll be serving um, approximately uh, 400 families. So uh, please consider signing up for that. And then this Saturday, we have the big auditions coming up. So if you have a talent, the Solid Rock Idol come to audition. Solid Rock's Got Talent. The voice. This Saturday. It's not just singing, though. It's instruments. If you play guitar, bass, right? Play bass. The triangle. The harp. <laughs> bagpipes. 
And we trying to switch things up. If you do anything musically, please show up. Um, and also on the sign-up list beginning uh, Wednesday, August 4th, and that will be every week um, on Wednesday. While we do not have D groups, we will have the Doctrine of Providence led by uh, Dr. Carl Sanders. So sign up for that first one beginning August 4th. Um, and we will transition to Q&A. So the first question, give me one second, please. The first question is, is it safe to say that the difference in God in the Old Testament when it comes to God commanding obedience and allowing murder for a divine purpose, is it different in the New Testament when Jesus comes and commands us not to kill? Is it, is it different? Is that the question? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, What is the difference in, in that commanding obedience? Did he allow for it in the Old Testament and then... When Jesus came in the New Testament, was there a new commandment not to kill? Well, in the new so in the New Testament, the non non Jew so in the Old Testament it's really about the Jews, right? The Israelites, one nation, and they're living in the promised land, the land of Canaan, with other nations around them that God is allowing them to go to war with and, and kind of kill off, if you will. So that, the, the killing had a different function. It wasn't just like, oh, just murder. It was usually in the context of war. So in wars happen. You know, those always happen. So in the New Testament, though, when Jesus comes, war is not really the issue because the salvation has been extended to people who are non-Jewish. So it's not about going to war to protect and preserve a particular land like Israel in the Old Testament. It's about now that the, the motive has changed some. Even though there was some evangelistic responsibilities in the Old Testament, in the New Testament when Jesus comes, it's more about believing in him and then telling others to believe in him. So it's not the whole framework is different because it's not isolating one nation in a particular area where they are to fight for the land that God has provided for them. Now they're going to be everywhere. The church believers are going to be all over the place. And the mission is not to fight for a particular land, but to fight for people's souls. So you become fishers of men, if you will. So yeah, it's totally different. Next question. Is it safe to say that Solomon turned away from God because of his increase in wealth and power? And what can you say to the wealthy believer today um, so they can learn from the story of King Solomon? That's a great question. Is it safe to say, well, I know it's safe to say don't marry 700 women <laughs> and have 300 concubines. I think it's safe to say that. I don't know how these polygamists do it. Um, <laughs> I would say, so there's, in the New Testament, you know what's interesting about this? So the church in the West, and obviously not everyone, but because we're in the West and we're sort of the, the socioeconomic political framework that we're in is like capitalism, 
we tend to view the poor as a moral issue. Like we see the poor as it's a moral thing. Oh, they're poor, right? As if somehow they, they're poor because they're sinful, right? The Bible does not do that. We do that with fatherlessness too, right? We'll look at communities and say, look at the fatherlessness in this community. The Bible never talks like that. You have a couple of verses in Proverbs that talk about laziness, but poor in the Bible is not something that is a moral issue from God. It is an economic status that God says, I care about. Right? So same with fatherless. You could Exodus 22, verse 22, God is talking about the fatherless. Right? So why am I saying this? Because I think when we're talking about poor and rich, in the Bible, they're different. they have different ways that they think about poor and rich. To go with the actual question, most of the passages in the New Testament towards the rich are warnings. They're warnings, which is interesting. They're warnings about being rich. I mean, you hear verses like, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his whole right? Then you have actual warnings. James warns the rich. There's a lot of warnings. So I would say it, the Bible doesn't say it's not using King, you know, Solomon as the impetus for, but it's clear in the Bible that in the New Testament, you got the rich young ruler who just couldn't give up to follow Jesus. You got warnings against the rich in Timothy and in James and these, these passages where it's like, hey, you know, be careful when you're rich because it makes you proud. It, it, and even then, you got, remember the, in the rich young ruler story, Peter and the apostles were like, well, who then can be saved if he's not? Because in their minds, rich was prosperity, blessing from God. In their minds, those, per- those people are definitely blessed by the Lord. And here the Lord is saying, no, it's easier for a camel, an actual huge camel. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a little needle than the rich to be saved. In other words, it's impossible. Why? Because riches hinder us from it. Now, how do we define rich? In our minds, rich are millionaires. To the rest of the world, rich are us. So that's why I said, I said earlier, we have to take in context, how do we define rich? According to the, most of the rest of the world, all of us are rich. I mean, when I went to India the first time and I came back, I could not believe. I remember, we, it was, we were 18 of us went, and when we came back, we, I don't know why we did this, we came back on Saturday from a country that's 10 and a half hours ahead of us. And we said, hey, let's all go to church tomorrow. We came back on Saturday. We were like, okay, we're not going to be tired, though, but let's go to church. And I was going to a mega church. Now, I had just spent a few weeks with nothing but a djembe as an instrument, off-key voices, worshiping God like I never have before. We were praying with a certain power and confidence that I'd never done before. We come back to our mega church, and the lights go down. And then the screens drop. Lord, you are. And we were just like, what is this? You see, we were so, we had forgotten what it was like to be here and to be rich that when we left and we were poor, we were like, man, this is the purest faith that we've been around. And we came back and we're like, whoa, this is faith. Now, remember, we all, everyone felt the same way. 
And our, uh, the pastor who uh, led, I was one of the, actually, I was one of the pastoral interns, so I wasn't doing a great job. I was sitting here like, what is, what is this? this is, and then we had to realize, wait a minute, no, this is the context the Lord has placed us in. We're not, we don't live there. We visited there, but we're here. So how do we take what we learned there and bring it back here? We can't judge this. No, this is the Lord working here. If I'd never gone there, I'd have been like this. I'd have been ready to participate. But it changed. And so we have to understand we are rich. We may not be as rich as others in our nation, but we're very rich. So we need to be careful because our riches are, and these are not, let me tell you how you know you're rich when you have plenty of choices. Poor people don't have choices. When you're rich, you got a lot of choices. Where am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What car am I going to drive? What job do I want to work at? Can I do? That's rich. Poor people don't have that. They walk around and think, who's, the, the options are, who's going to give me something? So we're rich. So when God warns us about being rich, when he warns rich, we need to take heed to that and not think this applies to the millionaires. It applies to us. That's good. Sorry for the long rant. I miss India, sort of. <laughs> this is a two-part question. Would God use the sinful vengeance bitterness of one Christian to punish another Christian in the way that he used Haydad's bitterness or since would God is that the question would God or did God would God would God or since he has a higher standard for Christians would he always be displeased by a Christian releasing bitterness and sinful vengeance on another Christian that's a good question those are two different things though so would God use the actions, the sinful actions of a Christian? I'd say, let's go back to Romans 8, 28, all things, right? In the Greek, all means all, right? So all circumstances, even the sins of others, other believers against you, God uses. You know, when I do a lot of counseling with couples, a lot of times when you're like in a conflict with another person, each, each side wants you, the counselor, to say who's right and who's wrong. I've been in situations where people have been offended at me because I don't start with, well, you're right and you're wrong. There, obviously, there are times, but so if someone is initiating sin against you and you respond sinfully, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. It might be that someone provoked it and started it, but you're both wrong because the standard isn't each other, but the scriptures, right? So you're both wrong. So when you're trying to work that out, I always say, listen, you're both right, so let's talk about what does that look like, instead of saying, well, you're both wrong. Now, obviously, there are times where one person needs to be adjusted for this and that, but that's just the, the reality. So God is always using the vengeful sins of other Christians to, to challenge other Christians. That happens. But he can also still be displeased by it, right? It's not like he's like, yeah, get him, you know? <laughs> No, he might use it and allow it to happen, but it's not like he's like, yeah, go ahead, punch him in his face, punch him in his face, hey! Like, no, no, it's just like, no, he's displeased, particularly when it's believer against believer. But he also puts passages in his word like Romans 12, 18. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, because he knows you're just not going to live peaceably with all people. Hence, Facebook, Twitter, and everything, all these other places. It's just impossible sometimes. Some people are difficult. Sometimes with a difficult one. So, yeah, I think God uses them, and God is displeased with them. Absolutely. This next question is very similar. Can you please explain how to distinguish between direct circumstances or direct involvement and indirect circumstances? 
wasn't God as directly involved in Hadad's as uh, Jeroboam? So if we're just going off of 1 Kings 11, I think there's a difference between like the phrase God raised him up and then all these natural things just happen. So those, so the indirect is just, it just seemed like it naturally manifested itself. Sure, God was sovereign in that situation too, but his involvement wouldn't seem as obvious if it hadn't said the Lord raised up Hadad. That's what made it. If we had just read that, we wouldn't be thinking that way. As a matter of fact, we often think the opposite. Like, no, God didn't do it. You know, so we don't. So the direct involvement is different from the indirect. Indirect is just like it seems like natural occurrences. But the direct was the word of God actually speaking to the, to the, through the prophet. Like, this is God saying this. Let me tear this up, give you 10 pieces, take, and then explaining what's happening. He's telling Jeroboam. He hasn't even told Solomon the specifics. He just said, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. But Solomon has no idea what that looks like. He has no clue what that means. So Jeroboam is getting the specifics. So you're getting a direct word of God from the word of the Lord coming into the situation. So in, in 1 Kings, yeah, sure, is he sovereign over everything? But the issue is not, is God always in control? It's how much is his involvement do we understand? That's the difference. So the indirect is just like, man, that's just a normal circumstance that God used. The direct was God is the cause of this because Jeroboam may not have rebelled against Solomon. He just gave him a job. He's running the whole construction of the temple. And then all of a sudden, God directly says, he's out. You're going to be in. So those are different. Now, how does that work in our own lives? That's much harder. That's harder to discern sometimes because indirect, it just seems like stuff just happens. Like you got a raise you weren't expecting. You got this you will have. I recently received, well, there's just stuff that happens that you're not even expecting. You're just like, what does this happen? But then there's things where you feel like the Lord's directing this in such a way there's no other way. So I would say in our lives, it's indirect when it, it just happens and you give credit to the Lord. And then there are things that there's no way this would have happened unless it was the Lord. Like you just, there's no way. Now you can say that about everything, but in all honesty, there are some situations where it's like, no way. This would have happened if it wasn't the Lord. This is a direct answer to prayer. All of this stuff is like, there's no way this would have happened. So. Okay. This next question is a bit longer. We got time. We got all day till 10 minutes. Does it even make sense or is it useful to ask would things have been different if Solomon repented last minute? Um, despite all the indirect things that happened with Hadad? It feels like multiverse and free will timelines. <laughs> what can we take away or how can we respond to this Marvel storyline that will be so common in our culture? Or simply, maybe, should we just trust in the Lord? So, <laughs> the first thing I would say is remember, and this is key for all believers, Marvel's not real. <laughs> I love Marvel. I've been struggling with Loki a little bit, the series. But Marvel's not real. Mighty Mouse can't beat Superman, right? So, so when we're looking at this stuff, there, there, there really is no, no, no Marvel, right? But 
And then to answer the question directly, would it have been different? We just don't know. We don't know. Now, what we can say is whenever we see people repent, you see God relent. I mean, he said, I mean, if God would relent against Nineveh, people that aren't his chosen from the Davidic line, like, here's a, I didn't get into all of this because this is stuff that, I mean, Carl, I mean, Carl, this is stuff that we, <laughs> Jeroboam is not in David's line. So Dave, Jeroboam is replacing the Davidic line that God said would never be off the throne. So this is a serious punishment. This is a different dynasty. But God said he's not going to do it forever. So eventually it comes back to the, but and obviously Jesus is in the line of David. But this is removing the covenant that God made. If you believe in covenant, 2 Samuel 7, the covenant uh, of, of David that God says he's going to promise to put someone on the throne forever this is like, whoa, wait a minute. If you know your you know, Jewish familial history, this is replacing that by putting Jeroboam as king. So this is a big deal. I didn't want to get into all of that. This is a big deal, though, for this to happen. So, you know, that being said, we see God. This is a guy who is the son of, I mean, you think about God is saying, I'm not going to let this happen in your lifetime because of your father, David. So if Solomon would have repented, oh, I'm sure that it would have been different. But he, but he didn't, and so we, we have to, to go with that. But in the end, we should just trust God, not marvel. <laughs> All right. And I love Marvel, too. I'm a Marvel. Listen, I'm at every movie. Given our studies of God's sovereignty... When we are suffering through circumstances, do you think there should be more of a lean into pray and change our circumstances or more towards following and being content via Paul's words in Philippians 411? Mm -hmm. So I do not ever think the Bible teaches that those two should be juxtaposed. They are not two different things. They are one and the same. And the case in point is the Garden of Gethsemane. I think what Jesus did is the model. Ask for what we want the Father to do. Ask. The persistent widow in Luke 18, ask. The Father, the scriptures tell us to ask. Ask for these things. Now, Jesus did say, look, when you pray, don't say all these words like, like the people who don't know God because the Lord already knows what Jesus, the Father knows what you need before you ask it. But the Bible tells us we should pray for these things. What we, what we find it difficult to pray is, I think, not my will, but your will be done. The problem is not should we ask and this or trust. No, we do the same. We do them the same. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is saying his whole life. I mean, when he was 12, he said, why were you? Why didn't you know I was in my father's house? I mean, Jesus was bold at 12. The whole, his whole life, the son of man would be killed and then raised on the third day. Peter rebukes him. He tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like this is all, and then all of a sudden, he says, take this cup from me. I think as believers, we need to ask for whatever our circumstances are, but say, not my will, but your will be done. Because we don't know what the Lord's will is. Some people think because God is a healer that it's his will that he always heals. That's not always the case, though. It's not, and that doesn't mean God's not a healer or that God doesn't care. It's just like, remember the dude who was born blind and they said, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This man was born blind 
for the glory of God, which meant he was born blind because I was going to come here and I'm going to make him see. That's what he meant. That, that was another way. That's how God's sovereignty works. They think, oh, he, he sinned. Somebody either he or his parents said he's blind. He said neither. He's blind because so that now I can make him see and then you all trust the glory of God. So I think we should always do both. We should never think that because God does things that he's always going to do those things. But we should pray for everything that we think because we don't know what the will of God is. I have no idea if it's his will that people be healed. So I'm going to pray to my heart's content. But I'm also going to pray, not my will, but your will be done. That's how we escape from being disappointed. Because if we really want God's will to be done, then sometimes his will is no to what we're asking. When we get disappointed, it's, not, it's because we don't want his will to be done. We want our will to be done. That's the tension. We have to be willing to say, look, not my will, but your will be done, whatever it is. And if it's not it, okay, good. I don't want to be outside of God's will. That's a different, that's a different struggle. Great question. Mm. This next question is good. Uh, since God uses the word tearing as a form of punishment and judgment, what does it mean when it comes to the tearing of the veil when Jesus is on the cross? Is that a positive judgment or is it a result of the cross? Is it just a result of the cross? Is it just a result of the cross? Mm -hmm. Well, the tearing of the veil was... So the veil represented access. Only the high priest once a year had access to go behind that because typically the Ark of the Covenant was but the presence of God was there. So you couldn't just go back there like every day like eating a turkey sandwich or something back there but mm -hmm. using it as a table. Like this was... People died touching that Ark of the Covenant. Even when it was falling... Them two dudes tried to keep it up, too, and they died on the spot. And they was like, Lord, why did you do that? He said, because I said, don't touch it. Like, what part didn't you get? Don't touch it. It didn't matter if it touched the ground. The dirt is actually cleaner than your hands. So, so, that's what happens when you rap. You just get punchlines every once in a while. So, the... You know, the veil represented the presence of God and only people, only limited people had access. Once Jesus died, it was torn in two to indicate now everyone has access to God. So it was no longer you, the priest needs to be there. You need someone else to go before you. It's like, now nah, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus's sacrifice was sufficient that now Access to God is given to all people who believe in Jesus. So that tearing of the veil was one of the greatest demonstrations of God saying, you are welcome to come into my presence. There's, no, there's nothing else blocking me from you because Jesus is sacrificed. So for those who believe in him, approach the throne of grace is for those who believe in Jesus. When we sin, do we lead others astray as Solomon's sin led his people away? And do we also pay for others' sin when we have led them astray? That's a great question. So there's influence. There's influence, right? I don't think every sin leads someone astray. I mean, we're around people who sin all the time. We see non-Christians, they're blatant about their sin. We see it in media and all of that. And I'm not like, you know, I don't listen to like a rap song and think, let me go out and shoot, you know. I'm just not, I'm not, let me imitate this dude. It's like, nah, this doesn't happen. I watch a movie that has gratuitous violence in it, you know, 
And now I'm walking the streets like, hey, Josh, let me borrow your gun. You know, it's not, you know, it just, I mean, it doesn't happen to me. I think most people don't think like that, right? So we're not always affected by what other people do, but we can be. And so we have to be careful. In terms of our influence, I think it depends on, again, who you are to people. So like my sin could really affect my kids and my family. My sin could affect this church. So it depends on, I don't think everyone, it depends on influence, kind of proximity to a person and what you mean to people. Solomon was the king. So on one level, he represented like God's blessing and God's choosing, and we imitate the king. This is why when they came to him and said they want a king in 1 Samuel, he was like, look, I'm telling you, if you get a king, let me tell you what's going to happen. And they were like, we still want a king. He was like, all right, I warned you. So that's a different thing, like when you have that kind of level of influence. I do think Jesus does so. He does warn, though, if you teach any, teach any of these little ones to sin, it would be worse for you. It would have been better if you had never been born. So I think we need to take very – I think when we make people sin, like we influence people to sin intentionally, oh, I think God is really has a problem with that. And I think he warns that, 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 that for people who do that, it would be better if they weren't even born. We have two more questions in this. Are we wrapping up? This person seems to struggle with um, the sinfulness and character of Solomon. So they ask, how do we reconcile the fact that Solomon um, has written quite a few books in the Bible, uh, Proverbs and Songs, and how do we interact with them? So, so this is where, like, you know, in Matthew 23, Jesus says something that still to this day blows me away. It's profound to me. In the beginning of Matthew 23, he's talking to all these people, and he says this. Now, think about, the, now remember who the Pharisees are to Jesus, and all the, most of his conflict with, in the, in the, in the Gospels were against them, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, right? So he, Jesus says this. The Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So observe what they say, but don't imitate what they do. So here Jesus is saying they are still given the somewhat prophetic responsibility of teaching you about God, what they say, but don't imitate how they live. Now that's a crazy statement. Because Jesus has been calling them out as hypocrites the whole time, but he doesn't remove them from their responsibility to tell people about and interpret the word of God and tell people how to live. He just says, be careful how you follow them, right? Vastly different from today. A guy gets caught in sin and people think, I have to throw away every book from him. I can't listen to any sermon he's ever done. Listen. Truth is truth, not because people live it, but because God is it, right? So if, if I, God forbid, but if I disqualify myself from ministry, it does not mean everything I taught was disqualifying. It just means I failed to keep and live up to what I was teaching, and that happens. So when we're thinking about Solomon and his sin and how we process that, it's still the word of God. Right. So if God didn't want us to learn from that, then he wouldn't have put it in his word. 
So we have to remember everything that's in the word. 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and useful and profitable for teaching, training, rebuking, and all these things, right? So those are, that's still the word of God. The because the Bible is not about the character of the people who wrote it. It's about the character of God written by people. So we don't read the Bible. That's why the moral of the story is not be like David or be like, you know, slay the giants of your life and be like David. Like, that's not the moral of the story, right? We're not trying to be like Bible characters. We can learn from them. We learn from their mistakes and stuff, and we appreciate. I mean, we are inspired by their obedience and their faith. Hebrews 11. I mean, look at the lives of some of the people in Hebrews 11. Like, what does that tell you about how God used faith? I think, to be honest, I'll just be honest, sometimes some of us, we're a little too hard on ourselves. I think we're acting like God is like, man, what is you doing this again? Like, man, there's people in the, oh, there's people in the Bible that God says, these are the examples who are like, I'm sorry, they go way harder than some of us. I'm just like, wow, he's in the, he's in the chapter 11? This story's in chapter 11? But God says, no, faith is something beautiful and it's messy, but God knows how to detect it when it's genuine. And we're all messy, but genuine people. And I think we're so quick to be like, oh, he did this. So, like, you know, I don't, hey, listen, I, I said this after Robbie Zacharias. You know, I said, hey, listen, if I Google and I'm trying to answer, ask a question and trying to get into apologetics and it's him, I ain't turning it off. That was a sharp dude. I have nothing to do with him and God, but what he said is helpful. And I just think, but again, we just think about these things a little bit differently. So, I think I, I read Proverbs. I'm grateful for Proverbs. I'm grateful for all of that stuff because there are things I needed those. Some of those Proverbs men have changed my life. What Solomon said or did has nothing to do with me. The Bible does not say I got to care about who wrote it. I got to care about it's written. And that's different. This last question is, how do we handle being punished for our own sins? How do we handle it? Let's read something, because I'm always quoting. Let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth, pun intended. The Lord is not a horse, <laughs> but he has chariots. Right? He's, he's sitting on a horse. Let's read this. Why is my iPad doing this to me? Stop it. This is the devil. I rebuke whatever demon is trying to stop me from opening this app. There ain't no demon. I'm just pressing the wrong button. All right. <laughs> Let me read this to you about how do we process that, right? Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the, listen, this is important. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Verse 7 of Hebrews 12, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not dis discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our own benefit so that we can share in his holiness. And here's what's also really important. 
No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make your path straight so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. So here the Bible just tells us we just need to be trained by it. We need to be trained by it. Because the reason why God disciplines us is because he loves us. And if he doesn't, we'll continue. there are no consequences for what we do, then we'll continue to do them. Consequences are God's common and, you know, special grace for, because it's common grace. There are people, the reason why most people, people are afraid of police because of what? The, the prison and the system and all of these things, right? I told you about this soccer game I went to. I was like, man, there's 100 plus thousand people in there. And they were getting rowdy and 100 cops went around and went on the edge of the, and they didn't even have guns. It was in the UK somewhere. So they had nightsticks. I don't know why they got nightsticks in the UK. But I was like, those police are going to get murdered. They're crazy. There's no way you're going to stop all these people. They were all yelling, ah, whatever language it was, I forgot. And I was like, I'm, I'm, this is going to be a mess. And then the police were like, doing, I forgot they were saying something over the announcement. And then when the game was over, some people hopped over and ran, but a lot of people just kind of peacefully walked out. And I was like, those police were spared by the common grace of God because those people were more concerned about the consequences of their actions than they were realizing we would destroy these 100 police officers. There's 100,000 of us in the stadium. Consequences keep us in check. But, so that's one side of it. But for us, if you're truly a believer, you want to honor the Lord, right? So it's not just the fear of punishment, but it's the love. I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to disappoint the Lord either. So I think we just be, we're just trained by it. When he brings about it, we just trained by it. And we don't always know. You know. I just think whatever the Lord brings, just be perse- persevere, be trained by it. I don't even try to think, is this because of some sin I did? And I don't even think that's helpful because you just don't know. Is this because of this or because of that? It could be, but all I know is, hey, Hebrews 5, 7, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We learn obedience through suffering. And so we just need to be trained by it. So That's it. <laughs> Go with God. See you Wednesday for your D groups. Appreciate you. Love you. Thank you for being here. And I don't know why I wore a long sleeve shirt in the summer. <laughs>